Um, Matthew chapter number 7, if you have your Bible, and then also Matthew chapter number 26. Uh, Matthew 7 verse number 13 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36, says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here, while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be very sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. He went a little further, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. And he cometh unto his disciples, and he findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and he left them, and he went away again. And he prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is be trade into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Today we embark upon a new series called Broadway, as in the Broadway that leads to destruction. And I think there is a natural juxtaposition between uh, the title or what we're going to be studying and the celebration that we all enter into around this time, which is Easter, because Easter is the way of life. Easter is a celebration of the narrow way and everything that Jesus did for us. And um, we enter the Easter story at what I think is a critical juncture. We enter in at the place of Gethsemane, where, of course, Jesus prays that famous prayer three times, and it ends with, not my will, but thine be done. And in so doing, Jesus gives us one of the keys to either being on the broad way or the narrow way, and that is, have we surrendered our will to the will of the Father? And so this morning, I want to minister to you from the subject that I think I've cleverly titled Frank Sinatra. Some of the young people are going, who's Frank Sinatra, Pastor? Are you that conceited that you are naming the title of the message after you? No, not Frank Santora, Frank Sinatra. For the benefit of all of the young people, he was famous, as you remain standing, for this hit. Check it out. I've loved, I've laughed and cried. I had my fill, my share of losing. And now, as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that. And may I say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not me, I did it. My way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not the right to say the things he feels and not the 
I, I was hoping that you all would applaud at that moment. It, it's almost as if um, we think that doing it our way is something to be celebrated. Now, I'm not saying y'all shouldn't like Frank Sinatra and listen to Frank Sinatra, you know. And for those of you that come from that era, you pine for the days when music could be like that again. Because music today is just so messed up and gives so many bad messages. And, but I want you to consider the message of doing it your way. That's something that will lead you down the Broadway in life. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister this word to us? Would you make it real and relevant? And would you help somebody today, help them to be more like Christ? We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. Before getting into the Gethsemane narrative, I want to begin with one of those shocking statements of Jesus. You all realize that Jesus was a shock jock, right? That, that that Jesus said some stuff that just would just just make you just 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 hesitate. And what are you what are you talking about, Jesus? That that's kind of tough. Do you really do you really mean that, Jesus? Love your enemy, seriously, Jesus. Like really, like not get back at my enemy, not be bitter at my enemy, but but love my enemy. How about this one? If somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other cheek. Seriously, Jesus? Because if somebody slaps me on my cheek, I'm going to deck them. That's just, that's just the way it is, right? Jesus, you, is that what you really, really mean? How about this one? In order to follow me, you have to hate your father and mother. That's not only shocking, but that's just a little confusing. Because unless you know the context of what that means, it's kind of like, really, Jesus? How about this one? This one shocks everybody. Give 10% of all your financial increase to my house. It's like, no, you really can't mean that Jesus what does that mean in the Greek I need to find that out right you know how about this one if your hand offends you cut it off if your eye offends you pluck it out I'm looking around there should be a lot of one-handed blind people in here right now right but the fact of the matter is when you when you listen to Jesus he is such a shock jock he says so many things that just just kind of just take you back And one of the shocking statements of Jesus, I think, is found here in Matthew chapter number 7, verse number 13, our opening text. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, but cost narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. And and what's shocking about this is Jesus is saying, not all paths lead to the same place. He's saying that there's one path that is superior to all the others. Why is this shocking? It's shocking because it's so countercultural, isn't it? It's not only countercultural to the day in which Jesus was living in, but it's especially countercultural to our day, right? Because our culture says all paths lead to the same place and all paths are equal. All paths lead to the same place. All paths are equal as long as they are sincere paths. But Jesus is saying that's not true. All paths are not equal. One is infinitely better than, and, and, than all the others. And all paths certainly don't lead to the same place. As a matter of fact, they're, they're really just two paths, right? One path is a narrow path that leads to life. The other path and all other paths, he puts in this category, the broad path that leads to destruction. Jesus is saying that there's really only one path that leads to heaven and one path that leads to the afterlife and this place called heaven and to reconciliation ultimately for eternity with with this with this being called God, right? The broad road is all the other religions. Here's what Jesus is saying. 
Every other religion outside of me, Jesus is saying, leads to destruction. But, but, but faith in me. Jesus doesn't only say that the narrow way leads to life, but then he says, I am the narrow way. You remember that? John chapter 14, verse number six, he says, I am, listen carefully, the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is being narrow-minded. Jesus is being exclusive. Jesus is, 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 is being or acting like his way is superior to every other way. And the intellect comes along and the intellect says exactly that. Well, that's narrow minded. And, 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 and that's, that's, you know, uh, you acting like you're superior to everybody else. And, and, and to that, Jesus would probably say, and I would say, it's no less narrow minded or no more narrow minded. And no more exclusive than the statement that all paths lead to the same place. So what do you mean? That sounds inclusive and Jesus' way sounds exclusive. Yeah, but think about it this way. There are are a lot of world religions out there. The top three are Christianity, Judaism, and the Muslim faith. Okay? When you take the world's population and you crunch them into those religions, you have most of the world's population. All three of those religions believe... That their way is the right way and the only way to the afterlife. And so when you say all paths, as long as they are sincere, lead to the same place, you exclude a majority of the world's population, which believes that their path leads to the right place. All beliefs, just just understand this, all beliefs by the nature of a belief are exclusive. Every single belief is, is exclusive by nature of a belief itself. When you, when you believe in something, what you're saying is that this is, this is right and anything outside of this belief is not right. And so Jesus comes along and he, he says, look, I, I know that it may culturally sound narrow-minded, but it's really not more narrow-minded. And then he, he would go even further and probably say this. And to say that all paths lead to the same place is just intellectually silly. It's just intellectually silly. They say, well, what do you mean, pastor? Well, well, think about it this way. In any area of life, do all paths lead to the same place? It's like me saying, you know, go north from New York City, you're going to wind up in Florida. No, you're not. I promise you, you're not. Uh, it's like me saying, you know, well, the path of fidelity in marriage will lead to the same place as the path of infidelity in marriage. No, it won't. The path to hard work will lead to the same place in your career as the path of laziness. No, it won't. No, nowhere in life do all paths lead to the same place. And so, so society and culture comes along and says, well, if you have a sincere religious belief, if you're really genuine about it, it'll lead to the same place. No, Nazism is a sincere religious belief. That was the basis of Nazism. But how many of you know that that doesn't lead to the afterlife in a place called heaven, even though it's sincere? White supremacy is a sincere religious belief. Now, we would all agree that people who practice Nazism and white supremacy are mentally deranged. We would all agree with that, right? But from their perspective, they sincerely believe what they believe. And so if the measure of something is sincere belief, and that's what gets you into the afterlife, then we've got to accept a lot of things that we know are deranged and wrong in every way. And so to say that all paths lead to the same place is just an intellectually silly argument. It shows that you really have no intellectual credibility if you're going to say that. 
right? And Jesus, he, he comes right forward. Jesus comes out of the gate. He's like swinging. He's like, pa. What do you think of that right there? And he goes even further. Listen to what Jesus says. Not, not just that all paths lead to the same place is silly. He says this. He says, not all people who profess me as Lord go to heaven. I'm like, seriously, Jesus? Listen to how he says it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This passage is it's really, really shocking, right? And it's really, really shocking like in, in context like our community because it's kind of a belief that we kind of hold true that if you believe in Jesus, then, then you get to go to heaven. And Jesus, because not everybody who claims, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, gets to go into the kingdom of God. And Jesus identifies three characteristics that both Broadway Christians and Narrowway Christians all possess. Three of them. He says, the first one is a belief in his lordship. A belief that he really is the savior of the world. Because notice these people, they're standing before God on judgment day. And notice what they say, Lord, Lord. In other words, we believe you are who you say you are. So that's the first characteristic. Second characteristic they have is they are sincere. And not only sincere, but they are passionate about that particular belief. How do we know that? Because the example Jesus gives is they say, Lord, Lord. In the Semitic language, anytime you wanted to emphasize something, anytime you wanted to show that you were intense or passionate about, you double the name. And so you see, God will call, you know, in the Bible, he'll call like Abraham, 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 Moses, Moses, Saul, Saul. If God ever calls your name twice, you just better just brace, right? Just get, just get ready, right? And so what Jesus is trying to show here is these people not only believe he is who he says he is, but, but they also are passionate about that belief. To modernize it, these are people that get their worship on in church. You know, surely the people who get into worship are the ones that are really, really saved, right? I mean, the people that just stare, we, we kind of question whether they they really love Jesus or not. But the people who get their worship on, man, the people who got their hands raised and they clap. And, and if somebody runs around and asks somebody who's passionate about Jesus, they might be nuts, but they're passionate about Jesus, right? So what we believe. And Jesus says that's, that's a characteristic, this, this passion of both the narrow path Christian and the broad path Christian. But then he, he really shocks us. He gives a third characteristic. And he says, he says, people, third characteristics, people who are active in service to God. It's a characteristic that both narrow path and broad path Christians have. Notice what these people said. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do wonders in your name? Look at all these things that we did in your name. And, and Jesus basically says, with all of these characteristics that these people have, that we would say identifies them as sincere Christians. Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Ye that work lawlessness. And I'm like, oh my goodness. By this time, I'm like, are you wincing with me? Are you going, am I really in? Am I, am I really saved? Jesus is, 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 is challenging us here. But then what he does is he kind of he explains further. And he says, even though 
those three characteristics, let me give you the logic behind it. The absence of these three traits demonstrates that you are not a Christian. The absence of these three traits demonstrates that you are not a Christian. It's impossible to be a Christian, not believe that Jesus is Lord. Possible to be a Christian, not be passionate about your belief that Jesus is Lord. It's impossible to be a Christian and not be active in service, right? Those are characteristics that you, you need to have if you're a Christian. So the logic is the absence of these three traits demonstrates that you're not a Christian, but the presence of these three traits doesn't necessarily mean that you are. And Jesus presses the issue a little bit further. He says, let me tell you what characteristics are really the tell signs These are really the tell signs of whether you are on that narrow path or that broad path. And notice one of the things he says is it's a grip of God's grace. How do we know this? Because here are these people who appear to be Christians who get before Jesus on the judgment day. And here's what they do. Imagine standing before Jesus on the judgment day and going, going, you're going to let me in because look at all those good things I did. Jesus, I, I cast out demons in your name, and I did these good works in your name, and I did these good works in your name, modernizing. Jesus, man, I changed poopy diapers in church. Surely I'm getting in. I mean, that's somebody else's kid too. Somebody else's stanky kid, and I changed them diapers right there. Surely I'm getting in for those good works. Here's what happens is these people have no grip of God's grace. They think that entrance into heaven is dependent upon your good outweighing your bad. These people think that because they chalked up a lifestyle of acts of service, that some way, somehow, that merits them entrance into heaven. And Jesus comes along and he basically says, you have no grip of God's grace. You don't understand that the reason why you and I get to go into heaven has nothing to do, anything to do with anything that you and I have ever done. But it has everything to do with what Jesus did for us. You have to understand Jesus is saying that, that it's not by your works of righteousness that you get into heaven but it's by my works of righteousness it's what what i did for you i lived the sinless life i died the sacrificial death i was resurrected from the dead i imputed i give that to you when you get into relationship with me so that you can go to heaven no other way other way see it's grace that died for us on the cross it's grace that paid the price for our sins That was grace suspended between heaven and hell. That was God doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That was what, and because of that, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And because of that, God is able to give us, because he took what we deserve, God is able to give us what we don't deserve. All because of Jesus. And when you stand before God... And you stand there and you say, you should let me in because my good outweighed my bad. He's saying, you can't possibly be a narrow path Christian. You can't possibly be an authentic Christian because you have no idea. You haven't grasped the fundamental concept of the gospel, which is that we are saved, not by works, but by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. And so Jesus, Jesus identifies that. But then he, then he identifies the second characteristic. And, and here's where the rub comes in a little bit for those of us who have even grasped God's grace. He says uh, the sign of, of, of a narrow path Christian versus a broad path Christian is 
a sincere surrender to my Father's will. No, notice what he says here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But, and but can be translated, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying it is entirely possible to intellectually grasp that he's Lord, to be emotionally vested in that belief and even socially active in service to God, but still see God as a genie in a bottle who exists to do our will rather than we as servants who exist to do his will. Now, this is, this is, this is heavy. And here's why it's heavy. Because the relationship that most people have with God is the genie in the bottle relationship. God, I need you. What can I, what can I do for you? Fix my marriage. God, I need you. Well, what can I do for you? Provide me with finances. God, I need you. Well, what can I do for you? Heal my body. God, I need you. Well, what can I do for you? God, I need a promotion at work. God, I need you. What can I do for you? God, my car just broke down. I need a new one. Now, here's the thing about that. God has no problem with us as kids going to him as our daddy and expecting him to do nice things for us. Matter of fact, God wants to do nice things for us. But here, the core competency of our Christianity is to understand that God doesn't exist to do our will, but rather we exist to do his will. And if we get that turned on its head, if we get that twisted, Jesus is saying we, we might not be on the narrow path. And so Jesus is letting us know that, that the true Christian life is not easy. Notice again what he says here. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, but narrow is the gate, and look, and difficult is the way. That leads to life. Narrow means difficult. It means hard. Broad means easy. And don't we all know it? That to live our lives by our own will is easy. Right? If all you have to ever be concerned about is you, that's so easy. What do I want for dinner? Eat it. You know, doesn't matter what everybody else wants for dinner, right? What do I want? What do I want to do with, with, with this day off? Doesn't matter what everybody else wants. I do what I want to do, right? Right? What, what kind of sermon do I want preached this week? Who cares what everybody else wants? Who cares what God, what do I need today as I come to church? What kind of worship music do I like? So wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to just live for your own will? That's so easy. Jesus said, but that's, that's not the Christian life. It's hard to submit and surrender your will to somebody else's will, let alone your will to God's will. And this brings us to Gethsemane. There were three major events in the life of Jesus, three major events that that his life turned on, if you will, probably four if you count the birth, but that's Christmas, so we'll leave that out for now. Three major events, the wilderness, the garden, and the cross. Do you know there are three major events in every single one of our lives that will precede any type of resurrection that God wants to bring into our lives? Three major events. A wilderness, a garden, and a cross. 
In order for God to resurrect anything in your life, whether it's, whether it's your marriage or your health or your joy or your peace or your purpose or any of those kind of things, you and I always journey through those three critical places, a, a wilderness, a garden, and a cross. The cross is not my subject today, and so I want to pass by the cross quickly. Next week, we might linger at the foot of the cross a little bit longer, but before this is series over, we will definitely wonder at the cross. But for now, let me just tell you the cross is where we fight our carnality. The cross is where God helps us put to death our carnality because in between us and the resurrection of whatever in our life that God has for us often stands our carnality. And even if God resurrects something, if our carnality doesn't get killed, eventually that thing will die again in our life. Cross is where our flesh is killed. The wilderness, we've been in the wilderness for the last few weeks, right? We looked at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and we found out that in the wilderness, we fight our own personal devils. We, we fight our own natural proclivities. We fight the things that are, that are in us, that are, that are there, that in our flesh, that need to get out of our flesh. In the wilderness, the, the, the enemy, the enemy bothers you and the enemy tempts you with that which normally pulls you and different ones have different proclivities. In the wilderness, we're not tempted by things on the outside. There, there is nothing there in the wilderness on the outside. Being tempted in the wilderness is not like being tempted in Vegas. There are no slot machines in the wilderness. There are no strip clubs in the wilderness. There is no booze in the wilderness. There is no weed in the wilderness. In in, in the wilderness, you're tempted by what is there in you, what you struggle with, your own personal demons. The thing that, that pulls you and you come face to face and you fight that real live enemy. That's the wilderness. The cross is where you fight your carnality. The wilderness is where you fight your own personal demons. But the garden is a whole different kind of fight. The garden is where you fight your greatest battle. The garden is where you fight God. Have you ever fought with God before? The garden is where your will and God's will collide. It's an epic battle. It's a clash of the titans. Because by virtue of his sovereignty, God has given us permission to operate based on a free will. And the only thing that God cannot override, not by virtue of him not being powerful enough to do it, but by virtue of his sovereign choice to grant us free will to begin with, the only thing that God cannot override is our will. And so in the garden, it's our will versus God's will. It's what we want versus what God wants. And there we wrestle, we struggle, we fight with God. The garden is where you and I realize and come to grips with who God is. That he is our master and our maker, we're not his. The garden is where you and I realize God is not a genie in a bottle. The garden is where you and I realize that we are truly his servants, his hands, his feet, his mouth, his whatever he needs us to be. We're like tools in God's toolbox. 
And at different days, God will pull out a different kind of tool to accomplish his plan and his purpose for the planet. And the garden is when you realize that. The garden is when you realize that the theme of Frank Sinatra's song is not an anthem to be celebrated, but rather an affront to the lordship of Christ in your life. Even though it's kind of catchy. And even though it kind of feels good when you sing it. The garden is when you realize that the narrow path is not the place that you pull up to like a drive through window and tell God that you're going to have it your way. The kingdom of God is not Burger King. We don't get to dictate and call the shots. I mean, we do if we choose to use our will, but that's not the way that God wants it to be. That's the garden. And the garden is also this place of pressing. It was, that's what Gethsemane was. It was an, it was an olive grove. And it's where they took olives and they put them between a press and they crushed the olives to extract the oil so it could be a blessing to other people. And here's what happens in the garden. It's where our will is crushed so that God can extract what he's deposited in our life so that we can be a blessing to whoever God wants us to be a blessing to. That's what the garden is all about. It's a place of pressing. And in that pressing, it is also a place of beautiful confinement and restriction. Did you know that restriction and confinement can be beautiful? Now, if you're like me, you hate constriction and refinement, right? Like, don't put me in the window seat on the plane because you, it's, I, I need to be able to get out quick, you know? And I always sit and I know I shouldn't tell you this. I always sit in the exit seat and they say, if something happened, will you help? And I say, yes, but I don't mean it. I'm like, oh, every man for himself. See ya. <laughs> Get me out. Confinement. I hate confinement so much that I have to go to the bathroom. I shouldn't tell you this. Put the door open. I don't like being closed in. But there is, there is beauty in confinement. There is beauty in restriction. Remember the children of Israel, they're, they're, they're marching toward the promised land. And they finally get to the critical juncture where they can go forward and, and enjoy everything God has for them. Enjoy their resurrection or they can go backward and die. And do you know what God does? And, and, and I know we think that God did this so he can kill the enemy. But I think it, not only so he can kill the enemy, but though so, so that he can make sure the children of Israel got to where they need to. God puts a water wall on the right side, a water wall on the left side, and then God puts an enemy behind them. You know what God did? confined them, restricted them. You know why? Because if they were left up to themselves, you know what they would have did? They would have ran this way or they would have ran that way or God forbid they would have ran this way. And no matter which way they would have chose, they would have ran away from the freedom of the promised land. There is a beautiful restriction in confinement as a Christian. It's not to, it's not to hurt us. It's to push us toward that that place of freedom. There's freedom from guilt and shame because if it's God's will, then we never feel the sting and condemnation of sin. There's freedom from regret because if it's God's will, it was the right thing to do and we never have to think, should we or shouldn't we have done it? There's freedom from fear and worry because if it's God's will, the outcome is well in his hands. There's freedom from the need to perform because if it's God's will, he'll provide the power to accomplish it. There's freedom from the pressure of provision because if it's God's will, it's God's bill. There's freedom from the message of the enemy which taught you in your mind when you make mistakes because if you did what God wanted you to do, he cannot no longer taunt you in your head beautiful freedom in wonderful 
restriction. That's what Gethsemane is all about. Therefore, Jesus says in Gethsemane shows that at the core of our Christianity must be a sincere surrender to the will of God above all other things. If that's not the core of our Christianity, then Jesus shockingly asks, which road are you on? Are you on the narrow road or are you on the broad road? Have you mistakenly thought that you were where you needed to be with God but continue to live life doing it your way? Gethsemane is the perfect place for us to begin our series, Broadway, How to Wreck Your Life, because if you're a Christian, one surefire way to wreck your life is to insist on your will instead of submitting to God's will. How many times in my life had I wished I did it God's way? Can anybody else say amen? Oh, can I just tell you that the older you get, the smarter you get? Sorry, young people. It's a fact. I didn't know this until I got older, and maybe it's self-seeking, but it's, I just determined it's true. Because when I look back on my life, I think, yeah, shouldn't have did it my way. <laughs> yep, that was a mistake. Then you start thinking, here's how you really know you're getting wise. My parents were right. I was like, oh, I can't believe they were really right. I fought them, and I, and I yelled at them, and I resisted them. But the fact of the matter is I wish I would have listened to them. And when you're a Christian, you know what happens is you look back on your journey with Christ. You look back, and you go, God was right. Duh. Right? Of course he was. How much time have we wasted doing it our way? How much emotional energy have we wasted doing it our way? How many financial resources have we wasted doing it our way? Our way just just doesn't seem to lead to life. It seems to really lead to destruction. And so along comes Jesus and he said, listen, listen, I need to take you to this garden because that's where you, you work out a step of maturity in your Christian walk where you surrender everything you are to everything that God wants you to be. And so, Pastor, how do I surrender my will to God's will? What, are there any steps that I could take? How many want to know the answer to that? Can I see your hand? Just help me out here. You want to know the answer? How do I surrender? You have to come back next week, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you then. But I've got some homework for you. And I hate homework, by the way. I hated school, couldn't stand it, you know, cut all my college classes as many as I could and stuff like that. Um, so, so I don't want to give you homework that you can't do. So I'm going to give you homework that every single person can do. It's real easy homework. So this week, and hopefully you'll use this, this bit of wisdom for the rest of your life, but this week, I want you to do something every time you have a decision before you. Whether the decision is small or great, whether it's consequential or inconsequential. I just want you to, in your mind, in your heart, ask yourself this question. God, is this what you want me to do? Think about how life-changing things will be if you just ask yourself that question. Think about this. Every, as you're, as you're kind of in relationship with your spouse, God, is this how you want me to respond to this? God, God is, this, is this what you want me to do in this situation? As you're parenting your children, God, is this how you want me to parent? Is this, this what you want me to do? As you're on your job, God, is this the kind of work output that, you, that you'd like me to give? God, is this, is this the way you want me to, to talk or act around my coworker? Is, is this the kind of witness you want me to be to my boss or my employees? God, how, how do you want me to respond? As you're shopping, 
God, is this where you want me to spend my money? Come on, ask that question. You know I'm right, somebody. Right? How many times I wish I would have asked that question, you know? I was in Atlanta this weekend, ministering at our Atlanta campus. What's up, Atlanta? And, and, and I have this weakness for this place called Buckle when I go there. It's a store called Buckle. And everything is, sorry, Buckle. Everything is drastically overpriced. And I, and I go there and I'm like, yeah, but I, I like that. And I like that. And I like that. Now, thank God I can do that and not mess up other things. But, but sometimes you can't do that and mess up other things in your life, right? God, how do you, how do you want me to spend my money? Think about, I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and dare to say that if you were to ask yourself that question every step of the way, that you would find the life that God wants you to live. And so that's your homework. Would you stand to your feet?